Good morning and welcome to Come and Reason. We're happy you're here. And we want to pause for a moment and send out our prayers and best wishes for the families that have been influenced and affected by uh, Harvey and Irma and also the fires in Montana. Really all around the world have been some major weather problems. And we just pray for uh, the the rescuers and the families that we just want to include you in our uh, thoughts and prayers today. We are on Galatians, the last uh, chapter 14, Boasting in the Cross. So I have a little cross here because I want to make a point on this. The cross was a Roman torture device. It was intended to be the most humiliating, the most painful, the most dragged out period of suffocation that always ended in death one way or the other, even if if it meant breaking your legs so you would have to suffocate. So how can we boast about that? But Christians show the cross. They boast about the cross. They wear the cross. They put it on their churches and their Bibles. Why? Is it because payment was made to, to get in free pass to heaven? Is it because God's anger was appeased? Is it because God just showed us how much he loves us? Because God created a cure for our incurable illness of sin? We're going to talk about these things, and let's start with prayer. Dear Father, we love you. We need to love you more. The end of all things is at hand, and you've shown us in the Bible what we should be looking for, and the signs are all there. I think it feels like the toenails of time, you know. It's just so close. Everything happening just as you had said. And we've read the book, and now it feels like we're in the movie. We pray that you will lead our thoughts today. Not only thoughts that will improve and help our spiritual connection to you, but also thoughts and ideas that will help us reach out to those in need around us and gain a new perspective, perhaps, on viewing our part to play in their lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So, starting with Sabbath's overview, the memory text is Galatians 6.14. May I never boast, this is Paul, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. I'm adding Galatians 6.15, which says, what counts is a new creation. So, in Jeremiah 9, verse 23 and 24, this is what the Lord says. Let not the wise boast in their wisdom, or the strong boast of their strength, or the rich boast in their riches. But let the one who boasts, boast about this, that they have the understanding to know me. That I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For in these I delight, declares the Lord. So we need to ask ourselves, does the cross help in our understanding to know God? I think it does. The three things it lists, kindness, justice, and righteousness. These are things the Lord is saying, this is what I love, this is what I'm all about. What would you do if you found a physician, if you had an incurable disease? And being a medical person, I think in those terms a lot. 
what if we had found a doctor that was kind? He had the ability to show compassion. He had justice, or in medical terms, he had the ability to correctly diagnose you. And he has righteousness, the ability to restore the terminally ill to health and life. If we found a doctor like that, would be be boasting, I was cured, guess what? This doctor, go to him if you've got that. I want to. I would boast a lot about that kind of thing. Yeah, Kirsten. I like the end, the last portion at the end of the, the lesson, where it says, "Where um, truth and mercy go together, and righteousness kisses peace." Mm-hmm. I know that's a beautiful kind of visual, and I am a visual person. I see everything, you know, in my mind. I see it visually. Um. So, I mean, I think that that's written in a way that you can see what, what the cross is about, at least some of it. And it's hard for people to imagine that these things could go together, but they can. I think if, if you think in terms of, <clears throat> say, a wrecked zipper, <laughs> I think of Christ as the, the zipper part that brings these two pieces together again that used to be together once it was first made and now um, once the material's apart then you need the zipper to work again and get it back together again looking at um, Sunday's lesson I I think I pretty much will skip that because it's talking about did Paul write in his own right handwriting and so on um, um I think mostly that expresses how interested he was in letting the Galatians know what he feel, what he felt about them. They were his, you know, converts, so to speak, and people were coming in and changing the uh, the way the people were thinking. Wendell, everything is personal, you know, and for for Paul, this was personal. This is something that I feel very strongly about. I'm going to do everything that I can to help you one-to-one. And even though this is a group of people, even though they were in separate by space and time and whatnot, etc., this was personal. Lori? I think he understood the bigger picture, too. Like we were talking about last week, our burden is for churches and leaders of churches because we know how influential they are and we know how much impact they have on so many people. And I think he knew he was building the foundation of the Christian church in this world, you know what I mean? And so he knew how much influence and how important it was that they understood and got it from the get-go. And you can see why Satan would also target church leaders. (laughs) Because if I can get right in next to them and just off a little bit, my dad used to fly planes. And if you didn't keep always reorienting yourself as to where you were, even a slight difference here would make a huge difference there. And so Satan gets in and he tries to make that little difference that will, you won't even hardly notice it to begin with, may not notice it at all, but it gradually takes you away from where you needed to be. That's a good point. Um, and this whole thing, Monday's lesson, basically the whole thing that was that seemed to be the problem where people were coming in and telling these people in Galatia, uh, they need to be circumcised. You have to become Jew-like in order to be saved, like we did. There's no other way to be saved but the way we were. So he was fighting against that. 
And I have a question on that. Uh, actually, the lesson had a question on it. And I questioned the question. <laughs> so he, he intimates that the, the opponents are hiding behind a mask. They're acting like they're all and got the, the welfare in mind. But in reality, you know, they're just wanting to chalk up, you know, I, I got these converts to get cert, uh, circumcised and so on. So the question the Sabbath school quarterly says, what should this tell us about how even the best of motives can lead us astray if we aren't careful? So my question was, um, they seem to think that they were trying to get them all uh, circumcised so that they wouldn't be persecuted. And I'm thinking, is this the avoidance of persecution? Is that the best motive? The best motive for doing anything? How to avoid being persecuted? Persecuted by who? I don't know. I mean, that's that's a question that they uh, brought up in the Sabbath school lesson, and that seemed to be a motive that he thought they had, that they were just doing this to avoid persecution. There's two groups that could persecute them. One is, if they were Jewish, that was a legal religion. I mean, it's, it's very analogous right now, I think, in to what I know, at least I've been told of, the Chinese church. You know, in the, in the Chinese church, there is a legal Cynthia Adventist church, but it's not the most common attended church that would identify them as being Cynthia Adventist. Most of them are house churches, which are illegal and are, which are persecuted and limited in what they can do and whatnot. But if you join the established church, you can do whatever the government allows you to do. And in a similar manner, here this, this group of believers was separate from the Jews. But if they acted like the Jews, they could be an approved church of the Roman government. And so... If they weren't circumcised, then they couldn't participate as um, Jews in the culture or the Roman hierarchy of permitted things. Okay, And so they could be persecuted both by the Jews because they weren't Jewish and by the Romans because they weren't Jews. And so, you know, fit in. And... And I have angst over if I were living in another country and I was a member of the Seventh-day Adventist Church and the Seventh-day Adventist Church was not a legal religion, how would I respond? We went on a trip to um, the seven churches in Turkey and whatnot, etc. And we went to a meeting Friday evening and someone had to guard the door and someone had to, we had, we couldn't sit too close to the window so that we wouldn't be heard. And we couldn't say certain things while we're in that meeting. Because the room is bugged or something? Because people were listening. <laughs> yeah, they were concerned that people were listening. And they were concerned that the people who lived there that were attending them would be at great consequence to their lives. And so, I, at least I have a, a little bit of a feeling that hey, just fit in and don't create waves and whatnot, etc. So I'm not certain it's as clear as you might think, oh, you know, why not just go ahead and be circumcised and be, you know, fit in. Mm-hmm. I think that's not the danger. The danger is not fitting into the culture. The, the danger is 
assuming that that is what gets you heaven or gets you a relationship with God or gets you, you know, closer to him. I agree. That's a good point. Segwaying from that, what I want to spend the most attention on is the Tuesday lesson, um, which is boasting in the cross, which is what the main Sabbath school lesson is about. So I want to stay here a little bit because I think there's a lot to be thought about when it comes to the cross and the part it plays in our lives. Starting with the the second paragraph in uh, Tuesday's lesson, Jews found the idea of a crucified Messiah offensive. Of course, in their history, cursed is anyone who hangs uh, on a tree. And Romans found crucifixion so repulsive that it was not even mentioned as a form of punishment for for Roman citizens. The cross at that time wasn't uh, something to boast about at all by anybody. But here's Paul saying, that's the only thing I am going to boast at. I'm not going to boast about anything else. Not how smart I am, how my, my doctorate I got, how, you know, I was the letter of the law. All he mentions it briefly in some, uh, cha- in some letters he writes, you know, if you're gonna, if you're gonna go by credentials, I have the best credentials in the world. <laughs> and yet Jesus knocked me off my feet and got me on the right path. It's funny that the Bible predicted that we would misunderstand the cross. Uh, in Isaiah 53, 1-5, Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our affirmities and carried our sorrows, but we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds were healed. And that, to as a medical person, I appreciate this analogy particularly because we've talked of it many times in this class. Are we in a legal problem? Are we in a medical problem? Are we just making God mad and now trying to get on his good side? And that's what the cross is all about. You know, paying back God for what we did, only using his son to do it instead of us. Or are we sick as dogs? Are we dying of something? And everybody around us is dying of something, and we all have symptoms of the same disease. We just like to judge that your symptoms worse than mine, but we all have the symptoms of the same disease. And that the cross was all about curing that disease, helping us to trust God enough to open up our hearts and let him in. To heal us. I like lately, sometimes I watch House Hunters International. I like, you know, traveling without actually traveling in those cases and seeing these wonderful houses. And I notice that the ones I particularly enjoy have these big windows that open up. I mean, like the whole wall is now open to the outside. And lately I've been picturing uh, this as inviting God in. I stand at the door and knock. I don't rush in. I don't break the door down. I just knock patiently. And all you have to do is open the door. I come in. 
And he says, and then he adds, and sup with me. Well, I picture him coming in with toolbox and a basket of food and staying a while. I picture me opening the door like those big doors in those houses that now have a whole wall of door is open. Bring it on. Bring the tools to fix me. Bring the food to feed me. Bring what it takes to do something with me because I don't have what it takes. I've tried. <laughs> I imagine among looking at your smiles, <laughs> I'm not the only one who's tried. You know, there are whole religions that are built on trying to make... uh yourself better. Uh, I should. I don't know if I should mention it, but uh, the Scientology, for example, L. Ron Hubbard's thing, he, his people have it within themselves to make themselves better. God isn't part of that. It's you have a list of things to do and check, and that'll make you feel good because you're going through this list. And yet when people leave, it is a church that persecutes, that that uh, people who have left the church talk about how it tries to ruin their reputation, to destroy their job, you know, do everything they can legally do, lie and do everything to try to ruin their life if you leave. What kind of a church is that? Which says they want to make you better, but you don't have the freedom to leave. Uh, it's unbelievable. But in the picture of God that you have, if the picture of God is someone who is also going to torture you or destroy you or whatever if you leave you know you're an enemy and you deserve it right uh, it's a frightening thing and and um, a lot of churches have snips of that that's a really blatant example but there's a lot of churches who have you know uh, check this off and feel better about yourself and now you got to improve that and all that but really what satan t- tries our his best to do is get us to Leave God, not pay attention to God. It's not, he knows we can't fix ourselves. We know we can't fix ourselves. So where does he really root in? Try to keep you busy. Try to keep you even doing good things. Try to keep you not, not right reading your Bible, not spending time with him. You can't get his words, his healing in by osmosis. You really do need to get to know him. And I think the cross is, his forward advance, if you will, on reaching out to love you. The cross is his saying, look, I am so about your freedom. I am so about loving you that even if my own creatures torture me in the worst possible way to put me to death, I will not strike out to do anything about it. I will let you kill me, although it does say he lays down his life, but that is how he lays down his life, is just letting that happen. I want to talk a little bit about Jesus' preparation for the cross. Because I think the cross, the real idea of the cross, and we should spend much more time thinking about it, is uh, it's an example of love that needs to start feeling a response inside ourselves. So we think of Jesus preparing for the cross perhaps mostly at Gethsemane. I see him doing even more preparation when he was giving his final speech to his disciples and so on. So I like John 13, 1 to 5. It was just before the Passover feast, Jesus knew that the time had come to leave this world and go to his father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. How? 
The evening meal was being served, and the, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. I really want to emphasize that, because we miss that so many times in this verse, because we're coming to a famous one that everybody knows, but most people don't realize the one just before it says, he knew that the Father had put all things under his power. When you think of the universe we live in, that is a lot of things. So the question is, what does he do with all that power? He knew that he had come from God and was returning to God, so he got up from the meal, took off his outer garment, wrapped a towel around his waist, and after that he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet. Now we all know that part, but... A lot of times we miss the part before, and that part, the verse before, is such an important, always should be connected to this verse, because that's what God does with power. And if you miss the all-power part and just go to the washing part, you'll miss the big point of that, I think. And so for me, I started thinking in terms of... of um, Creation. Oddly, in my mind, creation has been started to be connected to this event, and I'll tell you how, and you can feel free to chip in. The Word, the Bible says in John, the Word, the word created the world, created everything that was created. That's the part of God we now know is Jesus. So the God in Jesus is the Creator. When he worked hard and created six days of us and the world, he also created the seventh day, a day of rest. Not because they were tired or needed rest, but because that was God's final, that was God's statement saying, now what do I do with this power? I've powerfully created, you know, if we set off an atom bomb, we use a little bit of material and create a big bomb. Imagine the power it would take to take to create this much matter. You know, it's a lot of power. So men could become afraid of God with that kind of power. But God says, I, this is how I use that power. You don't have to be afraid because I'll show you how I use my power. So he created, not, uh, he created a day for you to just rest. Think about it. Consider what he's done. Consider how you're related to him to each other, your, your maker and you. Converse with him. Find out more about him. Let him in. Let him show you how to be more like him. And the reason I think it's connected to the Last Supper is because, once again, we see God of all power kneeling down and washing his disciples' feet. He didn't have to do that. And the odd thing is, we really focus on, on uh, Judas and Peter as being the big, you know, disappointments of betraying and denying. But in fact, Jesus knew already that those feet he washed that very same day would all betray him, desert him, or deny him. Every single one. Everyone. And he still, with all his power, didn't go you terrible people, I've done all this for you, and you haven't done it. You're, just, you're going to desert me, I know you are. No, he took his power, knelt down, and washed all of their feet. So, 
I think that the cross gives us an example of how to love others and shows us how to accurately see and know this God. Go ahead, Wendell. Just an event that happened this week um, speaks about creation. Some spaceship, and I forgot the name of the spaceship, they crashed into, you know, Saturn. It's, it's amazing if you look at the images that came back from the spaceship about this enormous planet and all the moons that go around it and all the characteristics of this small group of satellites or, or natural um, planets and, and moons and everything else. It's gorgeous, the images and stuff like that. And that's just one part of this solar system in which there are thousands, millions of galaxies around. You know, on, the, on TV at the same time, it talked about the Hubble looking at a dark space in the universe that they thought nothing was there. And now come to find out there are thousands and thousands of galaxies in this one little space of view for the Hubble. And then to think that this person that created all that was in with 12 guys who were arguing over who was going to be the greatest, you know, and he washed their feet and declared them clean and said, when you get through with this, you're going to come back to me and here's what you need to do. He, he set them up for success even when they're failing. Incredible. Yeah, if you want to enjoy more of, of uh, what Wendell's saying, go to a website called the NASA Astronomy Picture of the Day, and there's archived years and years and years of various scenes in space and so on. They're finding galaxies, what, 13, 14 billion light years away? Galaxies? I can't even wrap my mind around how far that is. How far can light travel in 13, 14 billion years of light time, light speed of travel. And yet that God who made all this and holds it all in place came here to this little speck. Voyager left our solar system, turned around, was tasked to turn around and look back. They almost missed the earth. It was like a little dot in a ray. They almost thought it was debris. And it was where we live. And everybody that we've ever known or will ever know are on this little dot. And yet here this little tiny dot merits the attention. We're a speck on that dot. And somehow we managed to merit the attention, not just the attention, but the allowing us to torture and kill him just so we know he loves us, just so we know he makes us central to, I mean, he'll, he, uh, Ellen White says, one of the founders of our church, that he would have done that for one person. If only one person accepted it, he would have gone through all that for just you alone. Uh, and, and when you consider the juxtaposition of that creation, and I mean, I'm sure there's more. We just only can see that far so far. Lori. And I would say it wasn't just so we would know. We're told we are a theater and a spectacle to angels and men. But to me, the cross is boastable because it is such a direct contribute or contradiction to Satan's original allegation 
of what God was like. Exactly. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so when Paul says, may you win your case when, when you're brought into court, for me, the cross is the defense rests. Mm -hmm. This is the picture of what God is like, what he's willing to do for his creation, not sacrifice his creation, but sacrifice himself for his creation. It's, it defeats every single one of Satan's arguments and pretensions and distortions of God's character in one single event. And it also revealed Satan's true character as well as God's true character. Because, you know, when Satan started getting these false concepts of God and promoting them to people, uh, other angels, you know, he could have been snuffed out. God could have fore foreknew what he would do and could have snuffed him out. He could have not even made him. <laughs> and some people regret that he did and wished and wondered why on earth would he create a being he knew was going to uh, leave him and take a third of the angels he knew was going to screw up so many people's lives on this planet. And yet that is ultimate freedom to have children that you might find are going to disobey. You might going to find are going to turn bad, you know, but would you not have a child just because you knew they might do something you didn't like someday, you know, or would you hope that that love would win all that it could win? I want to think a little bit about this week. I think there might be a little par par uh, parable. Jesus was big on parables. The disciples don't seem to be big on parables. They were just basically telling it like it is. But somehow Jesus only spoke to the public in parables. In private, he would explain it to his disciples. But he only used parables. And I got to thinking, I wonder if the cross itself is a parable. Think about it for a moment and see if any of you can think of what the cross might be a parable about. Tough one. <laughs> the intersection of, of what comes from the earth and what is above the earth. You know, you think about the section that goes across the top of the cross, where the arms would be, if you will. Um, that's above the earth. It's what holds up that person. And you made me think of the mercy seat also. The ark was made of um, acacia wood covered with gold, representing us. We aren't golden, we're wood, but Christ permeates and covers us. But the mercy seat, mercy seat itself was solid gold. It was not covered wood covered in gold. It was solid and represents Christ being the interface between us and God, whose Shekinah glory was over that. Yeah. I used to use the cross as a, an example in helping our children and myself see make decisions, okay, because we all... Our wheels are crossed every day, okay? And we're either going to make a decision that's going heavenward, okay? Or we'll make a decision that is earthward, okay? We all have decisions every day, okay? We all have our cross, and that decision point is right there in the middle. Which way are we going to go, up or earthwise? That's my parable that I use. Yeah, that's great. My kids. Has anybody, that's wonderful. Has anyone else thought of something? 
Otherwise, I'll jump in. The one that came to my mind was in on Friday, sort of his, his work was done. It is finished. On Sabbath, he rested. And on Sunday, he gained life back. And if you look at it as a parable of our lives, that's what the cross does to our lives as well. That it is a parable of us going along and working, but then his, his sacrifice, getting to know him and um, like taking up our cross. Like you said, do God's will instead of what you would do, which is what Jesus did, creates rest, creates unity with God on, uh, on Sabbath in this particular instance. But our connection with God, where we lay down and sacrifice what we would have normally done, gives us rest and connection with God and then new life with him. So in that way, the cross, that little weekend of the cross, really represents our journey with God. And that reminds me of something. Uh, you know, everyone knows the 23rd Psalm, I imagine. But one day it hit me that there was more to this than met, met the eye. And it sort of comes right in here. So let me just say, here's what I thought. Okay, so the 23rd Psalm is harder to find than I thought. The Lord is my shepherd. Listen to this now. When I read through, notice the change of person. Normally when you're talking to somebody or about something, you're in that person. Uh, that would be she or you or I or that's a person, a way you respond to a person. So listen for the change in person in here and see if you can't discover that the 23rd Psalm is actually a con condensation of the spiritual life, the spiritual whole spiritual life in just a few verses. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the quiet waters. He restores my soul. Isn't everything wonderful? He guides me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. Okay, so what, what person has been this David been talking in? He, 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 isn't everything wonderful? He's there. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff actually comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So many of us have, I mean, I don't think anybody gets through life unscathed. <laughs> Bad things happen to everybody. We're all like racing through a minefield, and it's only a matter of when you get yours. Either death or bad things happen to everybody. But all of a sudden I realized life was sweet and wonderful and green pastures and pure, all this and that. And then all of a sudden you go through trouble. So the value of trouble in this world is what? If you're listening, if you're thinking of a Christian life all the way through, isn't things great? Now things are bad. What's the value of tough times? Brings him out from a hymn and out there to now he's with me. Now he, you know him. You you don't just hear oh he's great. 
Now you really get down on your knees and you're like, if it weren't for tough times and we all had those picket fences and everything, dream house and everything we always wanted, when would we ever get down on our knees and get to know God and open up and express our utter inability to control anything in our lives, Harley? You know, when would we ever do that? So really, the, there is value in tough times. And in this case, the value mean it is when you come out of that, you know God better. And I think a lot of the cross is helping us to know God better. This is eternal life, that you know God. Yeah, Wendell. I have a little bit of a concern, okay? <laughs> Not to be too contrary, but... Um, I think what we are experiencing, what we're discussing right now, is a side effect, a natural consequence of sin. So if sin had never entered this world, we would not require evil or bad things to happen to get closer to God. Okay? And that we will, in eternity future, continue to grow closer to God without the interference of the veil of sin. And so, evil is not necessary for our perfection. But in this current sinful environment in which we are, yes, bad things do bring us closer to God. Or away. Can? Yes, or away. And they, they can be a tool Okay, but it's not necessary. Not essential. It's not essential for spiritual growth. You can come close to God without experiencing bad things. Experiencing bad things. Well, and and in some cases, I think it's true. Maybe I'm personalizing this. <laughs> Maybe it's my story. The bad things do happen and we do come closer to God. We look back on our, our past and it's when we were really struggling is when God was the closest to us. But I think it's important to state that that was not necessary. That was not God's original plan. No. Well, and he never wanted us to be in this situation to begin with. We would know him and that's all we would know was good about him. Yeah. Normally, doesn't mean it can't happen without it, but normally our bad things that happen to us are a result of our choices. Normally. Okay, now the floods and some of these things, you know, but in our everyday experiences, you know, it's it's built in. Our choices. Yeah. Consequences. You know, I want to just kind of step into that too, and, you know, I agree. It, not everything that happens and you all know this is my personal soapbox. Not everything that happens is God's will for us. You know, it, it actually says that, you know, they've, the Jews rejected God's will for them. What was his will? He wanted them to be saved. He wanted them to be healed and restored. So I think it's important that when you look at the wording, he says, even though I walk through the valley, this, he doesn't say, God led me here. He just says, even though I walk there, I know you're still with me. Um, and the important part is you have to know God, truly know him before you go through those difficult times. Because if you don't, those difficult times will turn you away. Um, and, and if you don't think of him as somebody who is trustworthy 
and, and safe, um, his rod and his staff won't comfort you. You know what I'm saying? Um, if you understand that the shepherd's rod and his staff were there to guide and help the sheep and not to hit them, you know, it's there to save them, then you kind of get the picture. But if you have the opposite idea, then you get a much different picture. Well, and, and you and I had a conversation recently about how I feel about God is in control. How do you feel about the statement, God is in control? If God is in control, why did he allow a child to be kidnapped, murdered, whatever? I mean, then the tendency, well, you either caused it or you let it happen, so it's your fault. What is God in control of? How he behaves. And he gives us the freedom and the gifts to make decisions, to be intelligent, and so on. But is he... I know someone very well who who went away from God for this very purpose. I mean, if God is the way he is, then how did he allow this? And if he did, he's a terrible God. So there must not be a God because that's uh, something I can't live with. <laughs> and it it is a hard thing. To uh, when somebody says that God is in control of everything, can that possibly be true? What would be? What would we be if God made us behave, made you do what you're supposed to do, even if you didn't want to do it? God made you do it because He's in control. Did He make somebody get drunk and get in a car and kill you? You know, did He? Could He have prevented it? Well, he just took the steering wheel and kind of wrenched it out and made him go a better way. We reap the consequences of our decisions that we make. And I, I've got to say that in those instances, God is a really good lemonade maker. You give him lemonades, he's, one of, he's like the best lemonade maker I know. Tough situations, and that's kind of where I was going with this, you know, life gives you a lemon, he makes lemonade. You get to know him, that he's going to take even the bad situations. He may not prevent the bad situations, and many times he doesn't. But he says, I'm with you in them, and now I'm going to take that and turn it around. Make the very thing that was your weakness and your soft spot be the part where you and I together, we make that strong. So that sounds like he's in control, making things better. So how does that happen? Yeah, well, I mean, that's where connection with God happens. Because you get, you know, when really bad things have happened to me, I maybe get angry. Uh, I want understanding. I come to God. He, in several times in my life, has given me a whole different understanding of my situation, which I needed, or I would have been, you know, just depressed, and I would I would not have be where I am today if God hadn't shown me what I was facing in a whole different light, a light that I I, I like to think that if you don't hear from God, you you may actually be. Uh, going in a direction that he care, you know, he'd like you to. But if you start stepping astray, he says, you'll hear a voice to the right or left of you saying, this is the way, walk ye in it. Well, if you don't hear that voice, what does that say? You know, many times in my life I've gone, I've started to drift in a different way than, and God was there kind of patting me back and saying, look at it this way. Glory.
I think that our, probably our definition of control differs from God's definition, just like our definition of law often differs from God's definition, because his control is in his natural laws. He, he established this universe. He created reality and the way it operates. So everything functions under, under those laws. Um, he, he sustains, he restrains, he is controlling Satan's reach into this world right now, or none of us would be here. He's sustaining this world in an artificial bubble, um, really against the destructive power of sin. He's got the four angels holding, although I don't know, one may have let go. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Seems like we're, <laughs> we're honing in on that. <laughs> Anyway, so yes, there is there is some control, but it's not coercive power like we define control. It is under the guise and the structure of his natural laws that he created reality to operate under. And one of the things he does, and I'm saying is one of the things he has control of, is showing you how to heal, showing you how to pray, not for yourself only, but for other people. I had a situation in my life where uh, I was under control of somebody else for a while. And um, God showed me a way to pray for that person, which was unique, and I would have never thought of it myself, but it was very healing. And in that respect, I'm saying it's not controlling the outcome so much as it is guiding you to uh, a healing place from these things that happen. I think the strength of Christianity is that you can take a bullet and not pass it on. If you don't heal from these things that happen to you in life, you will pass it on one way or the other. And I think people think of Christianity as weak. Christians are weak. They need a crutch. No, Christians are wrong. They are right. They have a source of, they're strong. They have a source of healing that they can access so that even the uh, strongest bullets that hit us, we can heal from them and thus prevent us from passing it on to everyone around us. I feel the most sorry for perpetrators and so on who will never get in their life what they really want. What we want is to be loved and close to people because they are so hurt, so wounded that they hurt everyone in their life that comes close to them. The closer you get to that kind of person, no matter who you are, you're going to get burnt. And so you you end up feeling the sorriest when God shows you them. I mean, he shows you uh, ways of, of looking at things that helps you appreciate they are his child too. And they likely have been wounded in their life and never healed. And now, without healing, they're doomed to wound everybody else. Everybody else. Without healing. Well, and so the cross shows us that God has the capability of healing. Eve. As we're talking about this, it, when we turn our lives over to God, he does have more power to work in our lives and change things. And so no matter how bad things are in the past, and you can look back, and I can, and go, that was horrible. You know, how could God have allowed that to happen. If I have that mindset, but because I know God, I know that what I suffered was the choice of someone else. 
And because I trust God, I can go, okay, even though that was horrific, God can change that and work it in me for my good and the benefit of others. You know, he can change my heart. So I have more compassion, not like you said, not just on victims, but on, on the perpetrators. Um, just as was a Corey Ten Boom's sister, you know, when they were looking at people being persecuted by the soldiers, they were looking at the people being persecuted, and her sister was looking at the soldiers going, I pray for them. Look how wounded they are. You know, look how, look how sad this is. What effect this is having on them. Yeah. Yeah, and it, and it changes. And so when we, when we say that God can work things around, you know, we're not saying that he's controlling it. We're saying that I've given that to him, and I've said, you've said this is what you're going to do. I'm willing, change me, heal me, and then use me. You know, use that weakness and turn it into your strength. Exactly. There's a saying that I love. It's God will either calm the storm or calm you while the storm rages. In other words, in the good and the bad, God is there. So don't don't think when the bad times come, he's not there. Right. There's a concept that people refer to as fate, which um, is also sometimes known as blind fate. And uh, people, uh, especially people of other religions, and I'll say Islam in particular, seem to think that um, whatever will be, will be, and uh, there's nothing that we can do about it, and there's nothing that we, there's no state of mind that we can pray ourselves into to deal with it. It's just one of the hard realities of, of life, or the, you know, the, the paradigm of how life works. But I think that that is a uh, cop-out, if you want to use the old uh, hippie term, uh, that... Uh, people use to avoid trying to make a connection uh, between themselves and God or between themselves and a higher a higher level of reasoning or thinking, if you will. And so it, it kind of circles back to what you were saying about the uh, God is in control um, thing. And I... You know, I, I hear well-meaning people, uh, some of whom are in my family, say this occasionally, and um, I think, well, I won't argue with you about it this time, but can we please improve our thinking? Can we please do something to improve the way that we are relating to that concept? Because as far as I'm concerned, as a man, I see a lot of things around that I know I can't do anything about. So I would like for God to be in control, and I'd like for Him to do all the, all the good things, all the nice things. But there are things that I can do something about. And if I can make a difference in someone's life by doing something, I'd like to be led to do it. I'd like to be inspired to do it. I'd like to be, you know, enervated and... and um, and, you know, strengthened to do it. 
So that's that's where I think that whole concept should take us, rather than say, you know, it's kind of the old uh, thing from French, the French language, "c'est la vie." You know, it's like what will be will be. You know, yeah, or the other saying, "There, there's a reason for everything. Everything happens for a reason, but they aren't. They're they're calling it fate or something." So Jesus tried to get his disciples on the page with him. He tried to warn them what was about to happen. And think about today. I'm going to I'm going to read this about a little bit about Jesus disciples, but can it apply to us today because we are as I mentioned earlier about to face this same Jesus who left is coming back and he's tried everything he can think of to prepare us for that event. Let me let me read this. I found it um, in Darkness Before Dawn, page 36. Uh, one of the founders of our church, Alan White, wrote this. Before his crucifixion, the Savior explained to his disciples that he was to be put to death and rise again from the tomb. And angels were present to impress his words on their minds and hearts. But the disciples were looking for temporal deliverance from the Roman yoke. And they could not tolerate the thought that he, in whom all their hopes centered, should suffer such an ignominious, ignominious death. The words which they needed to remember were banished from their minds, and when the time of trial came, it found them unprepared. The death of Jesus as fully destroyed their hopes as if he had not forewarned them. So... In the prophecies, the future is open before us, as plainly as it was open to the disciples by the words of Christ. The events connected with the close of probation and the work of preparation for the time of trouble are clearly presented, but multitudes have no more understanding of these important truths than if they had never been revealed, and Satan watches to catch away every impression that would make them wise into salvation. And the time of trouble... We'll find them unready. And that was interesting how she linked these two events. We've been warned. We know what we should do. But, uh, you know, do we really get to know God intimately? So I wanted to ask a couple questions. What has difference has it made in your life? Anyone? What difference has it made in your life to know God and feel prepared to actually meet Him? Yes? The demonstrations that I saw that He went through on the cross, I mean, it was clear in Gethsemane He did not want to go through that. And even through the process, you could see the pain and suffering went through. But then on there, there was complete submission, complete trust, something that He couldn't see at that time beyond but at that point all he had was trust in his father that that he was in control not a control of the situation that he wanted it to turn out to but in control of of the universe and in the matter of how he designed this whole whole thing so then as i see that i start going back to many of the parables that he went through like them on the boat you know with the storm his his communication to them was I'm here. You know, I mean, there's nothing that can happen if you believe in I'm God, because I'm in I'm in this scenario. Um, so yeah, there's there's bad things that happen to us that that 
lead us toward Him or away, and then there's good things that happen to us that can lead us to Him or away. But that final trust matter, that tr- that recognizing that no matter what happens, He's in control and He has the ability to, you know, whatever the circumstance turns out, I'm okay with that. That um, that gives me a peace that passes all understanding. And further than that, even, what did he occupy his time doing while in the process of dying and being tortured? I'm not going, ow, ow, ow. I mean, he was spending his time reaching out, reaching out you know, asking for forgiveness, spending time with the one thief who both of them started out reviling him. Both of them, it says, were, were after him. But in that span of hours, one of them saw something amazing in this co crucifixion victim enough so that it changed his whole life around. It changed his trajectory to the point where Jesus assured him he would be in heaven. I mean, and so he reached out to his mother. He reached out to his John, the disciple John. He was spending his his torture time (laughs) thinking about how to make life better. He was concerned about everyone else other than himself. It's the whole reason for that. He was willing to suffer that for the glory that was set before him. There's not a parent here, I'm sure, that would not suffer even to death knowing that that action was going to heal their child or save their child. Of course you would do that without a second thought. And I mean, that was the motivation was always love. Yes, so true. Well, I don't know the outcome if you choose if you choose to follow him, he's provided an outcome that's very favorable. If you choose to leave him, will he torture you or keep you artificially alive to torture you for the rest of eternity? I'm just saying a lot of times people feel that way. Controlling the outcome could actually mean Okay, you didn't love me, so I'm going to keep you artificially alive so that because you chose not to love me, you'll be tortured through eternity. I mean, we're sinful. Would we even think that was fair? And yet, so many times we think, well, God's in control of the outcome, including the bad people's outcome, and he's going to get even with them, (laughs) you know. And we as wicked people wouldn't even think that was appropriate punishment for whatever they did. I was thinking the good outcome. Yeah. <laughs> I know, but I have to slip that other one in. <laughs> because just because we choose not to love God doesn't mean he's going to like shish kebab you for the rest of eternity because you chose not to love him. I mean, and that's so embedded in so many churches where I say Satan gets right in there next to truth and puts in something about God that we've many many of us have been taught that god is like that well that's that's why it's so important to actually get to know god you know get to know jesus and he's reaching out to show us what he's really like so we're in control the negative outcome yeah well how that eternal thing came to be is that there came to be an idea that all souls are eternal Whereas God said, if you sin, you're going to die. The, the Satan said, well, did he, you know, will you really die? Ah, uh, you won't really die. And that concept has stayed on to the point where what do you do with a soul who decides not to 
love God and is eternal. They must have some place for him to be. So there you have it. <laughs> you got to figure out some place for this eternal soul and what must be happening to them. They must be being tortured. Uh, so I think they, to break that, you have to go back to creation and to the first uh, deception when Satan said, you won't surely die. And God said, yes, you will. We are out of time. Ah, I want to uh, uh, have a little final prayer, and then we have an announcement afterwards, if you'll just be, hang around for a minute. Dear Father, we see the vastness of the universe. We see this one tiny planet upon which we are a speck. Unbelievably, you decide to come and save us and would have saved, tried this very thing for just one of us. We can really not even fathom that, but we appreciate all the efforts you make through your cross, through the sanctuary, through healing, through everything that you try to do to show us who you really are. Help us get to know you, and by knowing you, get to love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.